What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Guys, July 4th, the nation's independence happened yesterday. I didn't record during it. Um, I spent most of it in my house cleaning up cat urine from underneath beds, uh, cleaning up cat throw-up, and cat feces. They're really, really old cats. One's 20 years old. The other one's 18. They're killing themselves by squeezing everything inside of them, outside of their bodies. And uh, I just have to go through the motions because my kids love those cats so dang much that there's no way I could ever put them down. I'm not the kind of person that puts an animal down either. They kind of become family and I just would feel horrible. It would be sort of like as if I got too old and my kids just said, you know, dad's pooping his pants too much. So they take me out to the garage and shoot me. So, um, been dealing with that. Uh, then the kids would never leave the house. So I tried to get them to go to a fireworks show. Uh, there's one at a park near my new home. And I've been to that park and their fireworks show before, and it's a real pain in the butt trying to get out once the show's over. So, uh, I tried to convince them to go and go early and everything and we could walk down and blah 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 they weren't into it they just wanted to sit around watch tv so uh i said what if we went someplace else like a parking lot nearby and just sat there watching and they said no and i got them to agree to walk around the neighborhood to see if there's a place where we can uh see the show without driving anywhere and they agreed to that, and there was no place, so that stunk. But walking around the neighborhood at night uh, with all the old homes and everything was kind of idyllic. It was sort of like how you imagine uh, the neighborhood from To Kill a Mockingbird would be in the first half of the book before things got horrible. And so that was kind of nice, talking with my kids, making little jokes, walking down dark streets where there's no cars. Beyond that... Nothing. Girlfriend, I've got a girlfriend. And all the rest of you are losers. So that's something that I can uh, deal with. Um, I got interviewed by a whole different podcast that I have nothing to do with called The Cultured Bumpkin with J.C. Jacobson. He was really nice. Uh, I called him, or he called me, I can't remember, and then... That wasn't important. I don't know why I threw that in. And uh, we had a nice little talk before the uh, interview started. Really nice guy. Uh, basically better than me in every way possible. More successful podcast. Actually has listeners. Uh, 
He's only been doing it since November. Which, what did he do to get such a big audience? I have no idea. But, he's got all sorts of interesting backgrounds that I don't think I'm supposed to share because the case is private. But uh, basically, I was left shaking by a superior man. Uh, then when the interview happened, I just made an ass out of myself. So, I'm not going to recommend anyone listen to it. But beyond that, nothing else. I have a few days off of work. I'm recording this early in the morning before I have to go try to wake up my kids and get them to do something besides sit around all day. So with that, let's get into the last few chapters of this book, which I am dying to get through. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books for the most part that I'm reading, so um, I think it's probably pretty safe and you should probably shouldn't worry about it. But I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast, so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do. And uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing, I'm going to be pretty impressed, just like you. And maybe your kid in the back seat. And with that, enjoy this episode of Leaves of Glen. I am Glenn Nuzzles. So where did we leave off in the last chapter? Chapter 22, the Chicago Commune. Um, Avis is working as a spy. We don't get any build-up or explanation about how that would happen. I don't think the author took the time to figure out how something like that would work. She's just a spy now. She is in with the oligarchy. But instead of worrying about herself getting killed or any stories of intrigue leading up to the moment we're reading about, uh, she just spends most of her time worrying about Ernest. So again, not much of a person with her own agency. Uh, She learns that their plans to have an uprising in Chicago have been found out and that everyone's in danger. So she runs off to go talk to a Irish doctor with uh, blue eyes or something. And um, he basically says, yeah, I already knew. And uh, man, it makes me hot and is real excited for all the death and carnage that's going to happen. So, you know, people romanticized war and conflict back then, I imagine, as I'm trying to write that off instead of that this author is a psychopath. Uh, Hartman is a guy that's floating around for no reason. Never. I don't think we've ever had anything to do with them in this book. Not like I, his name was thrown in the beginning at any point and then he comes back around. He's just a new guy and uh, a new guy with a lot of importance that you're just supposed to accept right off the bat. And he talks about you got to keep an eye out on another guy named Knowlton. And if you don't, uh, I think he's a he's a traitor. And I was thinking, okay, maybe this is how the book wraps up. Knowlton is going to be some big important piece to how we know that Ernest dies. So maybe Knowlton is a part of this. And I uh, was thinking it was going to be a big thing. No, as soon as he mentions it, she just jumps to the future and says that he got uh, killed as a traitor. So he's not a big deal either. Um, lots of trains. Uh, racist titles for uh, for the staff. Not that it's... I mean, it's... In its time, probably not bad. 
but reading it by today's standards, oh boy. <laughs> so, um, found out that Gamans, Jamans, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, are just street urchins with the fancy title, putting on airs, and uh, they just know something's going to happen. So, maybe it's word on the street, maybe it's the mercury in their nose. We'll never know for sure. Things blow up, and uh, a random woman dies, and she's given a lot of importance. Uh, even though we know nothing about her or anything. So, that was something. So now on to chapter 23. The People of the Abyss. Suddenly, a change came over the face of things. A tingle of excitement ran along the air. Automobiles fled past two, three, a dozen, and from them warnings were shouted to us. One of the machines swerved wildly at high speed, half a block down. And the next moment, already left well behind it, the pavement was torn into a great hole by a bursting bomb. We saw the police disappearing down the cross streets on the run, and knew that, ing, we could hear the rising roar of it. What? I just turned the page, and that's what it says. One page says, cross streets on the run, and we knew that. Then I turned the page. It just starts the saying, ing, period. We could hear the rising roar of it. Okay, so apparently this Kindle ebook has a flaw in it. Fun. Aha, literature. Our brave comrades are coming, Hartman said. We could see the front of their column filling the streets from gutter to gutter. As the last war automobile fled past, the machine stopped for a moment, just abreast of us. A soldier leapt from it, carrying something carefully in his hands. This, with the same care, he deposited in the gutter. Then he leapt back to his seat, and the machine dashed on, took the turn at the corner, and was gone from sight. Hartman ran to the gutter and stooped over the object. Keep back, he warned me, with his hands. Then he returned to me. The sweat was heavy on his forehead. I disconnected it, he said, and just in the nick of time, the soldier was clumsy. He intended uh, it for our comrades, but he didn't give it enough time. Oh, so the soldiers are using bombs, too. Everyone's just throwing bombs all over the place. It would have exploded prematurely. Now it won't explode at all. Hmm. Everything was happening rapidly now. Across the street, half a block down, high up in a building, I could see heads peering out. I had just pointed them out to Hartman when a sheet of flame and smoke ran along that portion of the face of the building where the heads had appeared and the air, stone-facing of the building, was torn away. What? Something's going on with my book. Portion of the face of the building where the heads had appeared and the air, next page, stone-facing of the building was torn away. Oh boy, if this happens one more time... I'm going to have to whip out the paper book, the one that's completely water damaged from one of my lame Instagram photo sessions. That's going to be ugly. Uh, was torn away, exposing the iron construction beneath. The next moment, similar sheets of flame and smoke smote the front of the building across the street opposite it. Between the explosions, we could hear the rattle of the automatic pistols and rifles. For several minutes, this mid-air battle continued, then died out. It was patent that our comrades were in one building, that mercenaries were in the other, and that they were fighting across the street. But we could not tell which was which. 
which building contained our comrades and which the mercenaries. By this time, the column on the street was almost on us. As the front of it passed under the warring buildings, both went into action again, one building dropping bombs into the street, being attacked from across the street, and in return, replying to that attack. Thus we learned which building was held by our comrades, and they did good work, saving those in the street from the bombs of the enemy. Hartman gripped my arm and dragged me into a wide entrance. They're not our comrades, he shouted in my ear. The inner doors to the entrance were locked and bolted. We could not escape. The next moment, the front of the column went by. It was not a column, but a mob, an awful river that filled the street. The people of the abyss. Mad with drink and wrong, up at last and roaring for the blood of their masters, I had seen the people of the abyss before, gone through its ghettos, and thought I knew it, but I found that I was now looking on it for the first time. Dumb apathy had vanished. It was now dynamic, a fascinating spectacle of dread. It surged past my vision in concrete waves of wrath, snarling and growling, carnivorous, drunk with whiskey from pillaged warehouses, drunk with hatred, drunk with lust for blood, men, women and children in rags and tatters, dim, ferocious intelligences with all the godlike blotted from their features and all the fiend-like stamped in, apes and tigers, <laughs> anemic consumptives and great hairy beasts of burden. Oh, my girlfriend's texting me. That's why I got distracted there. And great hairy beasts of burden, wan faces from which vampire society had sucked the juice of life. Bloated forms, swollen with physical grossness and corruption. Withered hags and death heads, bearded like patriarchs. Festering youth and festering age. Faces of fiends, crooked, twisted, misshapen monsters, blasted with the ravages of disease and all the horrors of chronic internutrition. Innutrition. The refuse and the scum of life. A raging screaming, screeching, demoniacal horde. And why not? The people of the abyss had nothing to lose but the misery and pain of living. (laughs) And to gain? Eh, Nothing, save one final awful glut of vengeance. And as I looked, the thought came to me that in that rushing stream of human lava were men Comrades and heroes, whose mission had been to rouse the abysmal beast and to keep the enemy occupied in coping with it. And now a strange thing happened to me. A transformation came over me. The fear of death, for myself and for others, left me. I was strangely exalted. Another being in another life. Nothing mattered. The cause of for this one time was lost, but the cause would be here tomorrow. The same cause ever fresh and ever burning. And thereafter, in the orgy of horror that raged through the succeeding hours, I was able to take a calm interest. Death meant nothing. Life meant nothing. It was an interested spectator of events, and sometimes swept on by the rush, was myself a curious participant. For my mind had leaped to a star-cooled attitude and grasped a passionless transvaluation of values. Had it not done this, I know that I should have died. 
Half a mile of the mob had swept by when we were discovered a woman in fantastic rags with cheeks carnivorously hollow and with hollow black eyes like burning gimlets caught a glimpse of Hartman and me. She let out a shrill shriek and bore in upon us. A section of the mob tore itself loose and surged in after her. I can see her now as I write these lines. A leap in advance, her gray hair flying in thin, tangled strings, the blood dripping down her forehead from some wound in the scalp, and in her right hand a hatchet. Her left hand, lean and wrinkled, a yellow talon, gripping the air convulsively. Hartman sprang in front of me. There is no time for explanations. We were all well-dressed, and that was enough. His fist shot out, striking the woman between her burning eyes. The impact of the blow drove her backward, but she struck the wall of, of her oncoming fellows and bounced forward again, dazed and helpless. The brandished hatchet falling feebly on Hartman's shoulder. The next moment I knew not what was happening, I was overborne by the crowd. The confined space was filled with shrieks and yells and curses. Blows were falling on me. Hands were ripping and tearing at my flesh and garments. I felt that I was being torn to pieces. I was being borne down, suffocated. Some strong hand gripped my shoulder in the thick of the press and was dragging fiercely at me. Was dragging fiercely at me. Between the pain and pressure, I fainted. Hartman never came out of that entrance. He had shielded me and received the first brunt of the attack. This had saved me, for the jam had quickly become too dense for anything more than the mad gripping and tearing of hands. I knew he was going to die. They basically foreshadowed it. I came, too, in the midst of wild movement. All about me was the same movement. I had been caught up in a monstrous flood that was sweeping me. I knew not whither. Fresh air was on my cheek and biting sweetly in my lungs. Faint and dizzy, I was vaguely aware of a strong arm around my body. Under the arms, burp, the half-lifting me and dragging me along feebly, my own limbs were helping me. In front of me, I could see the move me, moving back of a man's coat. It had been slit from the top to the bottom along the center seam. Please tell me this is earnest. And it pulsed rhythmically, the slit opening and closing regularly with every leap of the wearer. This phenomenon fascinated me for a time. While my senses were coming back to me next, I became aware of stinging cheeks. There's a lot of cheeks in this chapter and nose. And I could feel blood dripping on my face. My hat it was gone. My hair was down and flying and from the stinging of the scalp, I managed to recollect a hand in the press of the entrance that had torn at my hair. My chest and arms were bruised and aching in a score of places. My brain grew clearer, and I turned as I ran and looked at the man who was holding me up. Please be earnest. It was... Oh, he it was who had dragged me out and saved me. He noticed my movement. It's all right, he shouted hoarsely. I knew you on the instant. I failed to recognize him. But before I could speak, I trod upon something that was alive and that squirmed under my foot. I was swept on by those behind and could not look down and see, and yet I knew that it was a woman who had fallen and who was being trampled into the pavement by thousands of successive feet. It's all right, he repeated. I'm Garthwaite. Oh, another bizarre name, but it wasn't Ernest. Garthwaite. 
He was bearded and gaunt and dirty, but I succeeded in remembering him as the stalwart youth that had spent several months in our Glen Ellen refuge three years before. Oh, so there's just another character being thrown in and then slapping in a little history that we didn't know about. He had passed me the signals of the Iron Heel Secret Service and token that he too was in its employ. I'll get you out of this as soon as I can get a chance, he assured me. But watch your footing. On your life, don't stumble and go down. All things happened abruptly on that day, and with an abruptness that was sickening, the mob checked itself. I came in violent collusion with a large woman in front of me. The man with the split coat had vanished, while those behind collided against me. A devilish pandemonium reigned, shrieks, curses, and cries of death, while above all rose the churning rattle of machine guns, and the put-a-put put a put of rifles. <laughs> At first I could make out nothing. People were falling about me right and left. The woman in the front doubled up and went down her hands on her abdomen in a frenzied clutch. A man was quivering against my legs in a death struggle. It came to me that we were at the head of the column. Half a mile of it had disappeared. Where or how I never learned. To this day I do not know what became of that half-mile of humanity, whether it was blotted out by some frightful bolt of war, whether it was scattered and destroyed piecemeal, or whether it had escaped. But there we were at the head of the column, instead of in its middle, and we were being swept out of life by a torrent of shrieking lead. As soon as death had thinned the jam, Garth Waite, still grasping my arm, led a rush of survivors into the wide entrance of an office building. Here, at the rear, against the doors, we were pressed by a panting, gasping mass of creatures. For some time we remained in this position without a change in the situation. I did it beautifully, Garth Waite was lamenting to me. Ran you right into a trap, and we had a gambler's chance in the street. But in here, there is no chance at all. It's all over but the shouting. Viva la revolution! Oh, boy. Then, what he expected began. The mercenaries were killing without quarter. At first, the surge back upon us was crushing. But as the killing continued, the pressure was eased. The dead and dying went down and made room. Garthway put his mouth to my ear and shouted, Ugh. <laughs> but in the frightful din, I could not catch what he said. He did not wait. He seized me and threw me down. Next, he dragged a dying woman over on top of me and, with much squeezing and shoving, crawled in beside me and partly over me. A mound of dead and dying began to pile up over us, and over this mound, pawing and moaning, crept those that still survived. But these two soon ceased and a semi-silence settled down, broken by groans and sobs and sounds of strangulation. And I think that's a great place to take a break. And we'll read about a new and exciting hot book from Penguin Random House, coming out July 9th, called The Magician Apprentice. Magician colon apprentice. Yeah, it's not a title that is really good to speak out loud. It's only 512 pages, people. Do you want to learn about it? Okay. 
the Rift War Saga, a classic of fantasy literature which no true fan should be without, opens with this tale of magic, might, and adventure. One of the world's most successful fantasy fiction authors, says The Guardian. They actually stuck the praise right up there in the, uh, in the description. They're just hot. They're able to gotta hold back those horses, but they can't. They're ready to rush. Raymond E. Feasts, Rift War Saga, a classic of fantasy literature, which no true fan should be without, opens with this tale of magic, might, and adventure. Orphaned boy Pug is apprenticed to a powerful court magician named Culgan in the world of Midkima. Though ill at ease with the normal ways of wizardry, Pug soon earns his place as a squire after saving the life of one of the royals at court. But this courage will be tested still further when dark begins from another world. Open dark Oh, beings from another world. I am recording this early in the morning before the kids wake up, and apparently I can't read out loud, so now I know I will never record in the morning again because apparently I'm still waking up. Dark beings from another world open a rift in the fabric of space-time to rekindle the age-old battle between the forces of order and chaos. Now the lives of Pug and his friend Thomas are thrown into danger and disarray. Only Pug's strange brand of magic might yet turn the tide in the struggle to repel the invaders and restore peace to mid-Kima. <sighs> Want to read about the praise? I do. Fantasy Book Review says, Understandably, this is one of the highest regarded books in the world. <laughs> yeah, okay. Totally gripping. A fantasy of epic scope, fast-moving action, and vivid imagination, the Washington Post book world says. Andre Norton says, Most exciting, a very worthy and absorbing addition to the fantasy field. Dragon Magazine says, The best new fantasy in years has a chance of putting its augur, aughor, firmly on the throne next to Tolkien. And keeping him there. The understandably, this is one of the highest regarded books in the world from the fantasy book review. I think that that was probably written by someone who is ready to quit their job. <laughs> it was like, yeah, screw it, whatever. It's like the best thing that ever has been written. Back to the story. I should have been crushed had it not been for Garthwaite. As it was, it seemed inconceivable that I could bear the weight uh, I did and live. And yet, outside of pain, the only feeling I possessed was one of curiosity. How was it going to end? Uh, would it be death-like? Thus, I did receive my red baptism in that Chicago shambles. Prior to that, death to me had been a theory. But after, afterward, <laughs> ever afterward, death has been a simple fact that does not matter. It is so easy. But the mercenaries were not content with what they had done. They invaded the entrance, killing the wounded and searching out the unhurt that, like ourselves, were playing dead. I remember one man they dragged out of a heap who pleaded objectively until a revolver sh shot cut him short. Then there was a woman who charged from the heap, snarling and shooting. She fired six shots before they got her, though what damage she did we could not know. 
We could follow these tragedies only by the sound. Every little while flurries like this occurred, each flurry culminating in the revolver shot that put an end to it. In the intervals, we could hear the soldiers talking and swearing as they rummaged among the carcasses, urged on by their officers to hurry up. At last, they went to work on our heap. We could feel the pressure diminish as they dragged away the dead and wounded. Garthwaite began uttering loud signals. At first, he was not heard. Then he raised his voice. Listen to that, we heard a soldier say. And next, the sharp voice of an officer. Hold on, careful as you go. Oh, that first breath of air as we were dragged out. Garthwaite did the talking at first, but I was compelled to undergo a brief examination to prove service with the Iron Heel. Agents, provocateur is all right, was the officer's conclusion. He was a beardless young fellow, a cadet, evidently, of some great oligarch family. It's a hell of a job, Garthwaite grumbled. I'm going to try and resign and get into the army. You fellows uh, have a snap. You've earned it, was the young officer's answer. I've got some pull and I'll see if it can be managed. I can tell them how I found you. Oh, he took Garthwaite's name and number and then turned to me. And you? Oh, I'm going to be married, I answered lightly. And then I'll be out of it all. And so we talked while the killing of the wounded went on. It is all a dream now, as I look back on it, but at the time it was the most natural thing in the world. Garthwaite and the young officer fell into an animated conversation over the difference between so-called modern warfare and the present street fighting and skyscraper fighting that was taking place all over the city. I followed them intently, fixing up my hair at the same time and pinning together my torn skirts, and all the time the killing of the wounded went on. Sometimes the revolver shots drowned the voices of Garthwaite and the officer, and they were compelled to repeat what they had said. I lived through these days of the Chicago Commune, and the vastness of it and the slaughter may be imagined when I say that in all that time I saw practically nothing outside of the killing of the people of the Abyss and the mid-air fighting between skyscrapers. I really saw nothing of the heroic work done by, my, by the comrades. I could hear the explosions of their mines and bombs and see the smoke of their conflagrations, and that was all. The mid-air part of one great deed I saw, however, and that was the balloon attacks made by our comrades on the fortresses. That was on the second day. The three disloyal regiments had been destroyed in the fortresses to the last man. The fortresses were crowded with mercenaries. The wind blew in the right direction, and up went our balloons from one of the office buildings in the city. Now, Bidenbach, after he had left Glen Ellen, had invited a most powerful explosive expedite, he called it. This was the weapon the balloons used. They were only hot air balloons, clumsily and hastily made, but they did the work. I saw it all from the top of an office building. The first balloon missed the fortress completely and disappeared into the country. But we learned about it afterward. Burton and O'Sullivan were in it. They were descending. They swept across a railroad directly over a troop train that was heading at full speed for Chicago. They dropped their whole supply of expedite upon the locomotive. The resulting wreck tried the lineup, tied the lineup for days. I cannot read early in the morning. 
And the best of it was that released from the weight of expedite, the balloon shot up in the air and did not come down for half a dozen miles, both heroes escaping unharmed. The second balloon was a failure. Its light was lame. It floated too low and was shot full of holes before it could reach the fortress. Hereford and Guinness were in it, and they were blown to pieces along with the field into which they fell. Biedenbach was in despair. We heard all about it afterward. And he went up alone in the third balloon. He, too, made a low flight. But he was in luck, for they failed seriously to puncture the balloon. I see it now as I did then, from the lofty top of the building, that inflated bag drifting along the air, and that tiny speck of a man clinging on underneath. I could not see the fortress, but those on the roof with me said it was directly over it. I did not see the expedite fall when he cut it loose, but I did see the balloon suddenly leap up into the sky. An appreciable time after that, the great column of the explosion towered in the air, and after that, in turn, I heard the roar of it. Bidenbach, the gentle, had destroyed a fortress. Two other balloons followed at the same time. One was blown to pieces in the air, the expedite exploding, and the shock of it disrupted the second balloon, which fell prettily into the remaining fortress. It couldn't have been better planned, though the two comrades in it sacrificed their lives. But in return to the people of the abyss, my experiences were confined to them. They raged and slaughtered and destroyed all over the city proper and were in turn destroyed, but never once did they succeed in reaching the city of the oligarchs. Over on the west side, the oligarchs had protected themselves well. No matter what destruction was wreaked in the heart of the city, they and their womankind and children were to escape hurt. I am told that their children played in the parks during those terrible days and that their favorite game was an imitation of their elders stamping upon the proletariat. <laughs> that the mercenaries found it no easy task to cope with the people of the abyss and at the same time fight with the comrades. Chicago was true to her traditions, and though a generation of revolutionists had wiped out, was wiped out, ugh, it took along with it pretty close to a generation of its enemies. Of course, the Iron Heel kept the figures secret, but at a very conservative estimate, at least 130,000 mercenaries were slain. But the comrades had no chance, so it's just another failure. Instead of the whole country being hand-in-hand in, hand in revolt, they were all alone. And the total strength of the oligarchy could have been directed against them if necessary. As it was, hour after hour, day after day, in endless trainloads by hundreds of thousands, the mercenaries were hurled into Chicago. And there were so many... Of the people of the abyss, exclamation point, tiring of the slaughter, a great herding movement was begun by the soldiers, the intent of which was to drive the street mobs like cattle into Lake Michigan. It was at the beginning of this movement that Garthwaite and I had encountered the young officer. This herding movement was practically a failure thanks to the splendid work of the comrades. Instead of the great host the mercenaries had hoped to gather together, they succeeded in driving no more than 40,000 of the wretches into the lake. Oh, they're literally trying to drive them into the lake. 
<laughs> I thought it was just figurative, but... Time and again, when a mob of them was well in hand and being driven along the streets to the water, their comrades would create a diversion, and the mob would escape through the consequent hole torn in the encircling net. Garthwaite and I saw an example of this shortly after meeting with the young officer, the mob of which we had been a part and which had been put into retreat, was prevented from escaping to the south and east by strong bodies of troops. The troops had fallen in with had held it back on the west. The only outlet was the north, and north it went toward the lake, driven on from east and west and south by machine gun fire and automatics. Whether it divined that it was being driven toward the lake, or whether it was merely a blind squirm of the monster, I do not know. But at any rate, the mob took a cross street to the west, turned down the next street, and came back upon its track, heading south toward the great ghetto. Garthwaite and I, at that time, were trying to make our way westward to get out of the territory of street fighting, and we were caught right in the thick of it again. As we came to the corner, we saw a howling mob bearing down upon us. Garthwaite seized my arm, and we were just starting to run when the, he dragged me back from in front of the wheels of half a dozen war automobiles equipped with machine guns that were rushing for the spot. Behind them came the soldiers with their automatic rifles. By the time they took position, the mob was upon them, and it looked as though they would be overwhelmed before they could get into action. Here, there, a soldier was discharging his rifle. But this scattered fire had no effect on in checking them up. On it came, bellowing with brute rage. It seemed the machine guns could not get started. The automobiles on which they were mounted blocked the street, compelling the soldiers to find positions in, between, and on the sidewalks. More and more soldiers were arriving, and in the jam we were unable to get away. Garthwaite, held me by the arm, and we pressed close against the front of a building. The mob was no more than 25 feet away when the machine guns opened up, but before that flaming sheet of death, nothing could live. The mob came on, but it could not advance. It piled up in a heap, a mound, a huge and growing wave of dead and dying. Those behind urged on, and the column from gutter to gutter telescoped upon itself, Wounded creatures, men and women, were vomited over the top of that awful wave and fell squirming down the face of it until they threshed about under the automobiles and against the legs of the soldiers. The latter bayoneted the struggling wretches, though one I saw who gained his feet and flew at the soldier's throat with his teeth. Together they went down, soldier and slave, into the welter. The firing ceased. The work was done. The mob had been stopped in its wild attempt to break through. Orders were being given to clear the wheels of the war machines. They could not advance over that wave of dead, and the idea was to run them down the cross street. The soldiers were dragging the bodies away from the wheels when it happened. We learned afterward how it happened. A block distant, a hundred of our comrades had been holding up a building across roofs, and through buildings they had made their way until they found themselves looking down upon the close-packed soldiers. Then it was counter-massacre. Without warning, 
A shower of bombs fell from the top of the building. The automobiles were blown into fragments along with many soldiers. We, with the survivors, swept back in mad retreat. Half a block down, another building opened fire on us as the soldiers had carpeted the street with dead slaves. So, in turn, they found themselves become carpet. Hmm. Garth, Wade, and I bore charmed lives, as we had done before. So again, we sought shelter in an entrance. But he was not to be caught napping this time. As the roar of the bombs died away, he began peering out. The mob's coming back, he called to me. We gotta get out of this. We fled, hand in hand, down the bloody pavement, slipping and sliding and making for the corner. Down the cross street, we could see a few soldiers still running. Nothing was happening to them. The way was clear. So we paused a moment and looked back. The mob came on slowly. It was busy arming itself with rifles of the slain and killing the wounded. We saw the end of the young officer who had rescued us. He painfully lifted himself on his elbow and turned loose with his automatic pistol. There goes my chance of promotion, Garthwaite laughed <laughs> as a woman bore down on the wounded man, brandishing a butcher's cleaver. Come on, it's the wrong direction, but we'll get out somehow. And we fled eastward through the quiet streets, prepared at every cross street for anything to happen. To the south, a monster conflagration was filling the sky, and we knew that the great ghetto was burning. At last, I sank down on the sidewalk. I was exhausted and could go no further. I was bruised and sore and aching in every limb. Yet I could not escape smiling at Garthwaite, who was rolling a cigarette and saying, I know I'm making a mess of rescuing you, but I can't get head nor tail of the situation. It's all a mess. Every time we try to break out, something happens and we turn back. We're only a couple of blocks now from where I got you out of that entrance. Friend or foe are all mixed up. It's chaos. You can't tell who's in those darn buildings. Try to find out, and you get a bomb in your head. Try to go peacefully on your way, and you run into a mob, and you're killed by machine guns. Or you run into the mercenaries and are killed by your own comrades from a roof. And on top of it all, the mob comes along and kills you, too. He shook his head dolefully. That's for people that are in the middle of like this crazy, violent scenario. He just had a big, wordy thing he just did there while rolling his cigarette. He lighted his cigarette, and he sat down beside me. And I'm that hungry, he added. I could eat cobblestones. The next moment, he was on his feet again, and out in the street, prying up a cobblestone. What? What? He came back with it and assaulted the window of a store behind us. <clears throat> it's ground floor and no good, he explained as he helped me through the hole he had made. But it's the best we can do. You get a nap and I'll reconnoitre. Reconnoitre. Well, I'm going to look that one up. Reconnoitre. 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 Okay, I was close. To survey or inspect an enemy's position. The act or process of reconnoitring. Okay. Well, now we know that. So he's going to reconnoitre. I'll finish this rescue all right, but I want time. Time. Lots of it. And something to eat. It was a harness store we found ourselves in. And he fixed me up a couch of horse blankets and 
the private office well to the rear. To add to my wretchedness, a splitting headache was coming on, and I was only too glad to close my eyes and try to sleep. I'll be back, were his parting words. I don't hope to get into an auto, but I'll surely bring some grub anyway. And that was the last time I saw Garthwaite for three years. <laughs> Instead of coming back, he was carried away to a hospital with a bullet through his lungs and another through his fleshy part of his neck. And that's the end of the chapter. He's got a bullet through the fleshy part of his neck. So what did we learn? We learned that if it's early in the morning and I'm trying to read a book, I can't. I keep screwing up words every five seconds. There's so many of them, I'm not even going to go back and try to edit anything out. We learned that uh, Avis and Hartman can get beat up by their own people that they love so much. Hartman is also capable of beating the crap out of an old woman. And he dies. A man named Garthwaite, an equally ridiculous name, which has been going on throughout this entire book, decides to save her, and he sucks at it. Uh, people get killed like crazy, to the point where Avis and uh, Garthwaite are hiding underneath a pile of dead people, and get pulled out by the mercenaries, and, and then sit around and chat with them for a little bit, because they're undercover. Uh, then, they get swept up in the running mob again, which are getting gunned down and directed towards Lake Michigan, which is weird that uh, in this story, they have decided to just herd them into a lake, and that's going to just work, <laughs> which I thought was weird, which I guess what? They just wind up standing out in the middle of the lake? I have no idea. So they escape again, and they wind up taking respite in a horse store. And then Garthwaite gets shot in the, the fat of his neck. So there you go. That was chapter 23. The People of the Abyss. And I think we're only a couple more chapters from being done. Tune in next time, and thank you for listening.